What's up? How are we? Good? Yeah? Hey, uh, Keith, by the way, you look really good, good tonight, bro. We're actually in the hipster softball league. We have a game after this, so it's our uniform. But uh, uh, yeah, so everybody good? Good? Cool. Uh, well, hey, my name is Josh Story. I am uh, one of the young adult pastors here at Christ Chapel, and man, it is good to be uh, with you guys tonight. Uh, if you will, open up with me to Luke chapter 15. We'll be hanging out there tonight. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a, a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Um, or if you think that like books are old school, there's going to be words up on the screen too, so um, help yourself there. But uh, as you're turning there, um, let me kind of set the scene for what's going down tonight. Um, when I first moved to Fort Worth after college, uh, I became friends with this um, certain friend group. And, and everybody in this friend group uh, knew this guy named John. Now, now, I didn't know John, I'd never met John, but I knew John's friends, and more importantly, I knew John's ex-girlfriend and her roommates, right? And so that breakup wasn't exactly amicable. Um, it wasn't like one of those, hey, let's be friends kind of things. It was a little darker than that. And so, uh, so when you talk to those girls, like, the story that you get about John is that he's literally the worst, right? That he is awful, right? Like, every story about John kind of paints him out to be this, like, kind of heartless, manipulative jerk who, like, drop kicks puppies in his free time. Like, it's like he's just a horrible person. And, and I would hear that, and I'd be like, come on. Like, drop kicking puppies, like, really? And they're like, no, I've seen him do it twice. Like, it's a thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's awful. And so I began to kind of develop this view about John because I'd heard all these stories, and they were all just awful. And so, uh, and so I developed this view about John being a horrible person. And that, now granted, again, I had never met John. I didn't know anything about John. I'd never spoken with John. But this was my view about John. And, and my view of John actually uh, affected the way that I approached him the first time that I met him. Um, so one night John comes in town and everyone's like, hey man, let's like go and hang out. And I was like, what? with John? And he's like, yeah. I was like, why? He sounds like the worst person ever. And they're like, no, man, like, he's all right. And so they like drag me there because I'm like, I really don't care about spending any time with this dude. And so we, we go and we start talking. And you know what I learned about John? I learned that he is delightful, right? Like he is like the nicest guy and he's funny and he's engaging. He's asking me about life. And I'm like, like this guy is so sweet. This is the coolest guy ever. And I also learned why I've never met John before. I didn't meet John because he doesn't live here. You know where he lives? He lives in Africa. You know what he does in Africa? He builds wells for people who don't have clean drinking water, right? So I'm sitting there like, this dude doesn't drop kick puppies. He's saving lives, man. Like, this guy is awesome. And, and I left thinking, man, I had it all wrong about this guy, right? But I had let all these voices and all these stories affect the way that I viewed John. Now, I, I tell you that because I, I feel like we do this a lot when it comes to our view of God. Right? I think that we live in a culture where there's, I mean, there's just a lot of voices, a lot of voices who are, who are saying, hey, God is like this or God is like that, and we develop misconceptions about who God is, right? So, so for you, maybe you read a blog somewhere that said that God is like this, or you read a book that said God is like that, or you had some, some college professor who sounded really smart and, and, and said that God is like this, and so, so somewhere along the way, we've developed misconceptions about who God is. Like, that is a reality in our culture, because there's just so many voices trying to tell us who God is. Well, that's a big deal. You know why? Because our view of God drastically affects the way that we approach God. 
Our view of God drastically affects the way that we approach God. So if we have the wrong view of God, we approach God in the wrong way, right? So in, in the same way that my view of John affected how I approached him, I wanted nothing to do with him because of all these voices that I had heard. Man, the way that we view God affects the way that we approach God, okay? And so our hope as pastors in this series is that we want you to know who God is, right? Like Luke starts off by saying, hey, I'm writing this book so that you may have certainty about the things of God. So our hope is that we are people who have a right view of God, not some cultural misconception about who he is, but a right view of God because we're looking at who God is in his word, all right? So, so here's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to look at one really popular misconception about who God is. And then I just want us to spend some time just kind of deconstructing that and, and, and reconstructing it in such a way that we develop a right view of God in hopes that, that if we understand who God really is, then that drastically affects the way that we approach God and, and that we can approach him with boldness and with confidence and with freedom because that's how we can actually approach God. And so on a side note, if you're not a believer in here, and first off, we are so glad that you're here. We hope that this is a place where you feel welcome. Uh, we hope that this is a place where you can uh, belong before you have to believe. Um, but man, we unapologetically will say that we want you to know God. Right? We want you to know who God is. And, and so maybe somewhere along the way you've, you've been burned by a church, you've been kind of told some things, and, and you've developed some misconceptions about God, and my hope tonight is that the Lord speaks to you in such a way that you for the first time can see God clearly for who he is. And I think that when you see who God is, man, you're going to be blown away because we have so many misconceptions, and, and, and I want us to help get to a place where we can view God rightly. So um, with, with that being said, look with me at Luke chapter 15. Verse 1, and we'll see right off the bat what this misconception about God is. Luke 15, verse 1, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, start right there. So, so right off the bat, we see a misconception about who God is, right? And what this misconception is, is the idea that God only associates with the good kids, the misconception that, that, that is boiling up here is the idea that God only associates or accepts the good kids, okay? And so let me explain how we get that from this. Um, there are two people in this scene, right? There are the sinners and the tax collectors, and then there are the Pharisees, right? And, and the Pharisees are the kind of religious elite, just really good moral people, right? And then there are the sinners. And, and so what we, we know from verse 1 is that the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to Jesus. They're, they're drawn to him, which personally, I love that statement because it reveals that there is something about the person of Jesus that will draw you in no matter where you are in life. You are drawn because of who Jesus is. But the Pharisees, those who are considered the good kids, the moral kids, the upright kids, I mean, those guys are confused. They have no concept for how this is happening because they've developed this misconception that, that God is only um, associated or accepting the good people. Okay? Now, before we kind of throw the Pharisees under the bus, because I do feel like, like the Pharisees kind of get painted in a, um, a bad light most of the, the time. I, I think if we're being honest... We actually associate with, with the Pharisees a lot, especially in this context, and I'll explain why. Um, the tax collectors specifically in this scene, I, I think, make this thing a big deal. Um, if you grew up in church, uh, you probably heard that, that tax collectors were hated because they would kind of scam people, right? So, so let's say like a tax is $25, they would charge 30 and then pocket the extra five, and so everyone was like really mad because they would kind of you know, skim stuff off the top and they would kind of rob people of money. That's probably what, what you heard growing up in church, and that's absolutely right. The tax collectors did do that. 
But the reason that the tax collectors were so hated by these people is because they were traitors. This runs a lot deeper because they are traitors to their own people. You see, Rome was the most oppressive, tyrannical regime. And so Rome ran Israel at this time. And so Rome's empire went from India all the way to England. That was a massive empire. And they ruled with an iron fist. They were absolutely oppressive. But when you have an empire that big, how do you govern that? How, How do you manage that without people rising up and trying to cause revolutions? Well, you have to have an army. A massive army. And this army that, that Rome had was absolutely oppressive, right? But big giant armies cost money, right? It costs money to feed these guys and to train them and to provide weapons and stuff like that. So, so how do you fund this giant army? Well, you raise taxes, right? And so the reason that the tax collectors were so hated is because these were Jewish people who said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go serve the Romans, and, and in doing so, I'm going to sign up and buy the right to tax my own people so that I can fund this oppressive regime, right? So, so the reason that they are hated is because they are traitors to the core, that, that yes, they are robbing their own people, but they're robbing their own people to fund the, the organization that is oppressing them, right? And so they are absolutely deplorable, right? They have their own category of sinful, right? It says that there are sinners, and then there's tax collectors. Right? Like, like they're next level sinners, right? In fact, the, the only thing that I can kind of think of that would kind of compare to this would be as if, um, let's say ISIS came and took over uh, America. And someone in this room said, hey, you know what? I'm going to volunteer to go work for ISIS. And I'm going to come and I'm going to steal all of your money. And I'm going to take your money and I'm going to go fund ISIS. I'm going to fund the people who are killing people and murdering people and oppressing people. Can we all agree that if that person walked into the room, there'd be some tension? right? Like, like, like we would not be okay with the guy that is funding ISIS walking into the room, right? And so what's going on here is that the, the Pharisees, who, who are the, the kind of good moral religious people, they see the tax collectors. They see the guys who are traitors, who are funding this oppressive regime, and they say, what's that guy doing here? And, and not just what is he doing here, like, like Jesus, why are, you, why are you eating with him? Why are you accepting? Why, why are you engaging with them? They have no concept for what's going on here because these guys are evil. And they have this, this misconception that in no way, in no category, would a man of God, much less God in the flesh, would he associate with these guys. So their question here is, man, I don't, I don't get this because they've developed this misconception that God only associates with the good kids. And I don't think that misconception has, has missed our culture. I think if we're being honest, I think that a lot of us kind of grow up with this idea that, man, God only accepts the good kids, right? And when we buy this idea, when we buy this lie, what happens is it drastically affects our, our approach when it comes to God. So, so, for instance, if I buy the lie that God only accepts or God likes the good kids, what happens when I sin? When I sin, what happens is I feel the need not to run to the Lord and say, Lord, man, I have fallen. Will you forgive me? Will you cover me in grace? That's not my reaction. My reaction is to run away, and it's to hide, and it's to try and clean myself up. Because I've deceived myself into thinking that in order for God to accept me, I have to be acceptable. I have to be clean. And so I'll go, and I'll do a bunch of kind of good religious things. I'll go to church. I'll go to small groups. I'll not cuss. I won't drink. I won't do all these things. And then I'll say, okay, now I'm good. I've done some good things. And now I'll come, and I'll say, all right, Lord, now you can accept me. Now I'm good. Will you accept me now? And we feel this need to run away and hide and clean ourselves up before we approach God. Or on the flip side, if we're not those people, and we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're actually a pretty good person, because we can all find someone who's worse than us, right? 
Like, like there, there's always someone who's worse. And, and, and when we get to the place where we kind of look around and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really not that bad. Like, I, like, I'm doing okay. What happens then is we approach God with a self-righteous entitlement where we begin to think that God owes us something because of our goodness. And so we go and say, Lord, I've, man, I've, I've been a small group this week. I've been to church. I haven't looked at porn. I haven't cussed. I haven't done all these things. Like, I'm, I'm doing all right. Like, I get your blessing now, right? And, and we deceive ourselves into thinking that that's how God accepts us. And both of those approaches are wrong. They're wrong. Because the reality is that God, he, he doesn't just accept the good kids. And so Jesus hears the Pharisees talking, and, and he hears them saying, God, or Jesus, I don't, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't, I don't understand how you are receiving these sinners, these tax collectors. I don't understand what's going on. And so he hears it, and he decides just to completely blow up their misconception. He decided to just completely blow it up. And so look what he says in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, so Jesus hears these really good religious moral people saying, hey, I, I don't have a concept for, for why you would accept these people, why you would eat with these people. And he says, hey, man, let me, let me ask you a question. If you lost something of value, would you not rejoice when you found that thing? It's like, yeah. It's like, so let's say that you had like a sheep. Actually, let's say you had like 100 sheep, right? And one of them just kind of wandered off. Man, you got 99 sheep. That's a lot of sheep, man. That's a lot of gyros. Right? But would you not agree that, man, you would, you would leave the 99 to find the one, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Or, then let's say that, like, it's payday, right? Like, we all love payday. Let's say that you get 10 coins, right? It's Friday. You're like, man, I'm going out. I'm getting a steak. It's going to be awesome. I got 10 coins. Um, and then somewhere along the way, you lose the coin because steaks are 10, 10 coins, right? I don't know how much coins are. Um, and somewhere along the way, you lose a coin. Granted, you got nine coins, right? Like, you might not be able to get a Coke, but you can at least get a steak, right? Like, that one coin is kind of iffy, I don't know. But, like, like can we agree? You would, not, you, would, you would search the house, right? You would, you would turn the house upside down to find this lost coin, right? Well, yeah. Why? It's because it's valuable. Exactly. Exactly. We throw parties and we rejoice when we find things that are lost that have a value. And Jesus says, that's why I'm eating with these guys. That's why I'm accepting these guys. Because, man, I want you to know something about our God. That he has a heart for the wanderer. He has a heart for the lost. But he doesn't just have a heart for them. He rejoices when the lost are found. And so if we, man, if we get this excited about finding things that we've lost of earthly value, how much more excited should we be when someone who is spiritually lost comes home? When someone comes to salvation? 
saying, and this is what I don't want you to miss, is that our God has a heart for the wanderer, and he celebrates when the lost are found. Right? This truth should blow our minds. This is a perspective shift. Right? That God doesn't just accept the good kids, man. That he has a heart for the lost. He has a heart for the wanderer. Right? But my fear is, is that it's really easy to, to, to just kind of let that, that truth be just kind of, oh, that's, that, that's cool. I've, I've heard that before. I've been in church before. I've, I've heard that idea before. Right? But this should absolutely rock us. And so let me show you what Jesus does to, to really just kind of drive this home. He says this in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens that, of, of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was looking to be fed, or longing to be fed, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And if you're a Pharisee listening to the story, I mean, there's no question anymore, at least there shouldn't be a question, about why Jesus is accepting of these people. Say, man, this is our God. He is a God who has a heart for the wanderer, a heart for the lost, that he celebrates when the lost come home. This is crazy, right? This is unreal. And, I mean, the gravity of this is crazy. So, 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 so let me unpack for a second just the gravity of this text because I feel like this is one of those parables that you've heard a lot in church. And so let me unpack what, what's really going on here because this is our story. Whether you believe it or not, man, this is all of us. And so here's what happens. The son does the most disrespectful thing imaginable. You see, it, it was not uncommon for a son to get an inheritance, but this was a highly patriarchal society, so you only get the inheritance once the father has died. So what the son did is essentially say, hey, hey, pops, look, you and I are cool, right? Um, I, I like you a lot. Um, you've done a lot of really awesome stuff for me, um, but I like your stuff more, um, and so I know that I can't get your stuff until you die, so let's just pretend that you're dead. I can take your stuff and go do what I want, and you can just do whatever it is that you want to do after I leave. Like, that's unbelievably disrespectful, right? I mean, like, he just said, that, I wish that you were dead. That's what he's saying in this scene. I mean, this is unbelievably disrespectful, but I don't know about you, but when I read this, man, I get convicted because every day I say this to God. So many times I'm like, God, like, you're awesome, but if I'm being honest, I really like your stuff better. And I'll use you as a means to an end to, to get your stuff, but 
But here, how about I just take your stuff and you kind of do your thing and I'll do my thing. Right? That's unbelievably disrespectful. But look what the father does. He gives it to him. He, he gives his son what he asked for. Right? And, and, and because of the, the culture, because of the, the patriarchy, the father had every right to kick his son out of the family. To say, are you serious right now? No, like, get out. Like, like, you don't say that to me. But, but he doesn't. He takes a hit and he says, okay. And right off the bat, we see an unreal love from this father. That he gives the son what he asked for, even when what he asked for spits in the face of the father. He says, okay. There you go. So then the son takes it, right? And he, and he runs off, and man, he just makes it rain, okay? Like, I don't know what making it rain looks like in this culture, um, but it's clear that he's not into diversifying his portfolio, right? Um, he's not setting up Roth IRAs or trying to invest wisely. No, dude's just straight popping bottles, right? Um, but here's the deal. You can only pop bottles for so long before you run out of money. And so that's what happens. He goes and he just blows it all, and all of a sudden he, he ends up with nothing, and then a famine hits. And all of a sudden he has nothing. He's starving. And so all he knows to do is hire himself out. And he gets a job working for a Gentile feeding his pigs. Now, for us culturally, we think that's kind of disgusting. Like, that's not a great job, right? But to the Jewish audience that's listening to this, man, this is a rock bottom. Because pigs were unclean. Jewish people didn't, didn't even come close to a pig. And so for a rich, young Jewish kid to find himself in a place where he is working for a Gentile, feeding his pigs and longing to eat the slop that the pigs are eating, that's rock bottom. That is rock bottom. And this guy is laying in the pigsty, longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And I don't know if you've ever hit rock bottom before. I think rock bottom looks different for a lot of people. And But when you hit the bottom there is this deafening clarity that can accompany that. Where all of a sudden, everything that you've been chasing fades away. Everything that you crave, everything that you thought was going to satisfy, all of a sudden becomes empty, and you see with clarity that, man, I need something else. This isn't working. And in this moment, as he lay ashamed and hungry and starving and broke, he has, with deafening clarity, he has one thought. Life was so much better with the Father. Life was so much better with the Father. But here's the deal. He can't just go home. I mean, yeah, like life was a lot better with the Father, but, but he can't just go home. I mean, I mean, he just told his dad he wished that he were dead. And then he didn't even invest his money. He, he blew it all. So you can't just like go home, right? That's not how it works. So he has this thought, I'm going to work it off. Because that's what we do when, when we sin, right? We have this kind of instinctual thing that, man, I need to work it off. If I, if I mess up, I, I do something to fix it, and then I work it off. And, and, and so he says, all right, I'm, I'm going to work it off. And, and so he even writes this whole speech, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Like, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Um, you should treat me as one, one of your hired servants. And he's like, okay, that's a great speech. I'll, I'll, I'll go, and I'll, and, and I'll say, Dad, I'm, I'm going to work for you, and I'm going to work off what I've taken from you. It's a great plan. So he gets up and he starts going. And can we talk for a second about how nervous you have to be at this point, right? Like if you're the son, man, you are so nervous because you've just spit in your dad's face and you're like, hey, dad, uh, so about the money that I stole. Um, like like you're, you're nervous. 
And so he's walking, and he's rehearsing his speech, and he's thinking, okay, okay, okay. Like, I'm sending it to heaven, I'm sending it to you. Wait, is it you first or heaven? Okay, heaven first. I'm sending it to heaven and you and, and all this sort of stuff. And he approaches. But look what happens when he gets close. It says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That means that the father was looking for him. It means that the father was on the porch, pacing, looking, hoping that he would return. Right? And he sees him. That's incredible. That he hadn't given up on the son. That he was longing for him to come home. Right? And he says that he sees him from a long way off, and he feels compassion. And if that's where the story stopped, that alone would be phenomenal. Right? His response is not to be sitting there, arms crossed, saying, really? You're going to come home now? Okay. The fact that that's not his response, because, because that's how he's supposed to respond, right? But no, he has compassion. But that's not where it stops. So he has compassion, and then he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. This is backwards. Everyone in this scene who's, who's hearing this, they're all gasping at this point. You know why? Because old men didn't run, right? This was undignified. Like a wealthy landowner would never run. But this guy, he sees his son from a long way off. He has compassion, and his response is to pick up his robe and to sprint to his son, and he hugs him. And this word for embraces means to literally fall on his neck. So he is running, and this is not some kind of cordial little handshake. He's running, and he's just giving him a bear hug, and he's embracing him, and he's kissing him. This is an emotional scene. But in the midst of the compassion of the father, the, the son's bent on pain for his sin, so he backs up. He says, Dad, 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 hold, hold on a second. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And right before he gets to the part where he pitches his idea, the father stops him. He says, no, 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 stop that. And he calls to his servant. He cuts him off mid-speech, and he calls to the servant and says, hey, bring me the best robe we have and put it on him. And bring me a ring and put it on his finger. Bring me some shoes and put it on his feet. And while you're at it, grab the fattened calf, because tonight we're eating filet. Tonight we're going to party because my son was lost, but he's found. He was dead, but he's alive. Let's go, right? Like he is excited. And this is not how anyone saw the story playing out. Because this isn't how we respond, but this is how God responds. You know why? Because our God is a God who has a heart for the lost. He has a heart for the wanderer. Right? Like this is unbelievable. So, man, so I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what kind of baggage you're bringing into this room. I don't know if you've been wandering for years or you've been wandering for a week. I want you to know that you can come home. I want you to understand that the way that God views you is that you can come home because Christ has made a way for that to happen. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is that you don't have to clean yourself up. It means that you don't have to run and try to do some good things to be presentable before God. No, what that means is that in the midst of our mess, despite our brokenness, Christ came and he died for you. 
he absorbed the penalty of God's wrath for you while you were still in sin. So what that means is that he has provided a way for us to have access to the Father. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can now run to the Father with boldness and with confidence, knowing that when he sees us, he hugs us, he embraces us, he throws a party because his son, his daughter was lost, but is found, was dead, but is now alive again. Man, that should drastically change the way that we approach God. And so, I, so if you consider yourself to be a wanderer in here tonight, man, I want you to know this. Come home. You can. And the God of the universe is accepting of you. That he throws a party when the wanderer comes home. That's unreal. That's unreal. Now, that truth, and that should bring us life, that should bring us joy. That should bring us a peace and a freedom. But here's what I know. I've been around church people long enough to know that, that this, this idea, although we would all agree with it, this idea ruffles some religious feathers. I'll explain what I mean. If, if somewhere along the way you've, you've deceived yourself into thinking that you can earn God's favor by your merit or by the things that you do, this is going to piss you off. You know why? Because it means that you followed all of the rules your entire life. You did everything right. And at the end of the day, you're still sitting at the table with that guy. And when you realize that you're both sitting at the same table, when you've done everything right and that guy's spit in the face of God his entire life, it's going to upset you because that's not fair. Right? I mean, let's be real for a second. That's, that's not fair. But that's what makes the story so awesome. It's like, God's not fair. And that is absolutely glorious. But sometimes it takes a second for us to understand the glory of the fact that God's not fair. So let me, let me show this to you. Check out verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And he refused to go. And his father came out and he entreated the meaning that he pleaded with him to come in. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Um, so I'm a recovering church kid. Um, and, and as a recovering church kid, I, I can resonate with the frustration of the older brother, right? Um, because this is unfair. I mean, you're, you're out in the field, and you're doing everything right. You're, you're doing everything the Father has told you to do, and then you show up, and there's a party going on. And not just a party. This is a rager, okay? Like, historically speaking, when you bust out the fattened calf, like, it's not a party. It's a party, 
right? And so, he, and so he shows up, and there's just singing and dancing and music and all this stuff. And he says, what's going on? And say, your brother's back. Your dad just threw him this epic party. And immediately this kid's angry. And so his response is to just sit right outside the party and pout. He crosses his arms and he refuses to go in. And so the father comes out and he's like, what are you doing? Man, come, 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 come party, come, come, come taste the steak, come drink the wine, come, come dance with us, let's, let's enjoy this. Like, you're, you're missing the party. And he says, no, I'm not going to go into the party. You know why? Because I've done everything right. I've never disobeyed you. I've never strayed from you. I've done everything right my whole life, and you've never even given me a goat. And when this kid of yours, this son of yours, like, like I'm not even going to call him my brother anymore. When this guy shows up, you give him the fattened calf. You throw him the most epic party. So no, I will not go into your party because this is not fair. And I love the father's response. In verse 31, he says, hey, all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. And what he's saying there is this isn't your brother's party. This is our party. This is just as much your party as it is his party because this all belongs to me. And if I decide to throw a party and you're invited, how does it matter how you get in there? All that matters is there's a party going on and you're invited and you're missing it because you're pouting over the fact that I showed him some grace unbelievable yet when we deceive ourselves into thinking that God owes us something because of our goodness this is our response this is how we approach God with self-righteous entitlement we refuse to sit at the table because we don't like you sitting there and our response is to say man that's not fair and you're right it's not fair but can I be brutally honest with you for a second you, you don't want fair. You don't want fair because you're not as good as you think you are. Like, you don't want fair because Roman three, Romans 3 says that no one is righteous, not even one. You don't want fair because Isaiah 64 says that on our best day, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. You don't want fair because Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. So the reason that you don't want fair is because fairness earns you eternal separation from God. So believe me when I say that you don't want fair. You want a God of grace. You want a God who is gracious enough to pace the porch, looking for his son, waiting for his son to come home, and then throws a party when he does. That's what you want. You want a God who is gracious enough to to leave the party and come plead with you not to miss it. Say, you are missing out on fullness of life and joy because you're caught up in your own goodness. No, that's not how it works. Come partake in my grace. That's what you want. And the beauty of the gospel is that's exactly what we get. The beauty of the gospel is that God has poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And because of that, you and I don't get the death that we have rightfully earned. So if you're in here tonight and any part of you hears this idea 
But God loves the wanderer, and he accepts the wanderer, and he celebrates when the wanderer comes home. If any part of you hears that and says, that's not fair, you're right. And you better praise God for that, because you don't want fair. You want grace. Now, I'm going to just give two quick applications as we close, and then we'll continue in song. And if you're in the room tonight, and you would consider yourself to be the wanderer, man, come home. And I, I said this a second ago, but man, come home. Like, it doesn't matter how far you've wandered or where you've wandered, what you're bringing into this room. Christ has made a way for you to come home. So come home. And if you have questions about what that looks like specifically, man, come, come find me or Ben or Tyler or anybody on our staff, and we would love to talk with you about what it looks like to come back to the Lord because God is saying, hey, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Let's celebrate because our guy throws parties when the wanderer comes home. Secondly, and if you've deceived yourself into thinking that, that you're better than you really are, if you find yourself on the outskirts just pouting because of who's at the table, man, learn to celebrate. Learn to celebrate. Because the reality is that, man, we get grace. And I think that sometimes we, we forget, those of us who have been believers for a while, or if we've been kind of doing this church thing for a while, we forget that we once were the wanderer. We forget that we once were the lost. So, man, when we lose sight of that, we begin to feel entitled because of our goodness, and we don't celebrate the fact that, man, it's only the grace of God that we got to the party first. So, man, if you find yourself pouting and learn how to celebrate because we don't want fair, we want a God of grace, and that's who we have, so let's celebrate the fact that God's not fair, that he poured his wrath out on Jesus Christ and not us. Man, in all of this tonight, man, my hope is that we are people who develop a right view of who God is. Not some cultural misconception about who God is, but when we see from the word of God that our God has a heart for the lost, he celebrates when the lost come home. And my hope is that we have a right view of who God is, and that moves us to a place where we approach the God of the universe with boldness and with confidence and with freedom. Because Christ has made a way. Because he has. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I thank you so much um, for the truth that you have shown us in your word tonight. Um, that we can approach you with boldness and with confidence because of what Christ has done for us. That, that we don't have to hide, we don't have to work it off, we don't have to, to earn your favor. But you give it to us freely. Lord, if I'm being honest, I, I can say those words and I can think about those things, but sometimes I just don't believe that. So, Father, for, for my brothers and sisters in the room tonight who are having a hard time believing that, believing that, that, that you can ever forgive, that you would ever celebrate them, Lord, will you speak to us tonight? Will you show us that there's nothing that we can do that separates us from the love that you have for us? Father, for the, for the wanderer, I ask that we, we just come home. 
that we recognize that life is better with the Father and that all the things that we crave, all the things that we chase, are going to leave us empty and unsatisfied. But you bring life. So we want to celebrate that tonight. We want to rejoice in the fact that you are a God of unbelievable grace. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.